G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Baroness Caroline Cox. She is CEO and founder of the Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust with a special focus on her visit to Australia around some issues that she's dealing with in Southeast Asia. We'll get to those. Baroness Caroline Cox is a life peer in the UK House of Lords. These days she sits on the cross bench, but for 10 years she was Deputy Speaker, dating back to the Margaret Thatcher era. She's a regular visitor to the nations where the work of her Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust is working. Nations like Syria, Sudan and South Sudan, Nigeria, Armenia and in East Timor. She visits these nations regularly to obtain first-hand evidence of their situations and uses her title and position as a sort of a hotline back to the UK government, holding members to account and contributing to policy solutions. She is also a fearless advocate for women and has just recently introduced a private member's bill in the House of Lords to protect Muslim women living in Britain under Sharia decisions. Uh, You can imagine it will be a significant conversation coming over this next hour, one you can contribute to. Shortly, we will open our talkback line on 1-800-316-316. There's also a post on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash vision radio. You might have a question, you might have a comment to make, you can do that there. Baroness Caroline Cox, and I might say, as I introduce you, the Right Honourable Baroness Cox of Queensbury. Uh, Welcome to 2020. Thank you. It's very good to be here. Uh, Baroness Caroline Cox, I know that uh, you'll want to relate to Aussies in a less formal way. Uh, Shall we call you Caroline? Yes, please. That's my Christian name. (laughs) (laughs) Caroline, your visit to Australia, you come here... And you've been here a number of times. Uh, You have a base uh, for the Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust here in Australia. And there are some specific reasons and some specific things you're talking about while you're here. Let's uh, let's tackle that first. Uh, What is the message you're bringing to Australian audiences as you're speaking to them this week? Thank you. Well, great to be here. Um, I always say... If I introduce myself, I'm a nurse and a social scientist by intention. That's what I thought I was doing with my life, a baroness by astonishment. You become a baroness being appointed to the House of Lords as the equivalent of your Senate. I wasn't into politics, and I was so much not in that world, I was the first baroness I'd ever met. Quite a shock. Wake up in the morning, baroness looking at yourself out of the bathroom mirror, and you know, it's quite a thing to adjust to, but I said to God, how do you want me to use the privilege of being in the House of Lords? And the message came very clearly. It's a wonderful place to be a voice for people who don't have a voice or people whose voices are not heard. So that's how I tried to use my role in the House of Lords and how I want to use my role while here in Australia. With Heart, uh, and I'm happy to say we do have a Heart Australasia branch, uh, Dr. Martin Panter is here with me, was one of the founders of Heart Australasia, and in heart, we try to 
be with people who are largely off the radar screen of major aid organizations uh, for political reasons. The big boys won't go without permission of a sovereign government. The sovereign government is victimizing a minority in its own borders, doesn't give them permission, so they don't go. So I spend some of my time crossing borders illegally and quite shamelessly to reach the unhelped and the unreached. Many are in war zones or post-conflict zones in great need, so we try to provide both aid. can't provide very much. We're very small, but what we do provide for our local partners, who are the real heroes and heroines, they multiply amazingly, and to be a voice for them. So I'm here to be a voice for those who don't have a voice in some of these parts of the world you've already mentioned, and also uh, to try to be a voice for people who in Britain are really suffering, Muslim women who are suffering from the rulings of Sharia law, and so I'm happy to talk about any of these people to be their voice. We'll get to a number of those issues because we don't want them unattended to in a conversation where uh, listeners will be interested to hear some of the developments that are going on in Britain. Uh, Let me take you, though, first of all, to the House of Lords. Here in Australia, we have our lower house, the House of Representatives, and we have a Senate, the upper house, a House of Review, In the UK, you have the House of Commons, similar to our House of Representatives, and then the House of Lords, very special. I wonder how you describe that in a nutshell uh, for our understanding of the important role that the House of Lords holds. Yes, certainly. Some people think it's not democratic to have a second chamber, which is not elected but appointed and still has some of the hereditary peers who've been there from over the centuries as hereditary peers. They're rationale, the justification for having an appointed second house is to make sure that it fulfills its function as what we call a refining and revising chamber, to try to make sure that law is good law. So there are people who are appointed to the House of Lords who could never stand for election, like the law lords, like former chiefs of defense staff, like former ambassadors, like principals of universities. People who bring a lot of wisdom, experience, expertise, and who really do scrutinize legislation as it's going through Parliament. And that is a very serious role of the House of Lords, to make sure law is good law. And at its most serious, it really does scrutinize legislation in great detail, much more detail than can be given in the House of Commons, with much greater expertise than elected representatives who rightly democratically represent their own communities Um, but don't necessarily have the knowledge uh, to look at law in great detail. So that's a justification for the House of Lords, and at its best, it serves that role very well. Uh, These days you're on the crossbench. You did spend 10 years as the Deputy Speaker in the House of Lords. Your appointment came uh, for a, a peerage from former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, And she recognised something in you uh, that would allow your thoughts, your influence uh, to be brought into the House of Lords, which already has a very strong and sound Christian base. Uh, But uh, what sort of influence have you felt over the years you've been allowed by the privilege of uh, being appointed Baroness? Well, just for the record, in case any of your very savvy listeners look up Wikipedia, I was actually a deputy speaker. There's a group of us. It's not quite as grand as the deputy speaker, (laughs) but also for 20 years. So just to put the record straight. But it's a great privilege. But originally, I was appointed by Margaret Thatcher uh, way back. I'm very old. I'm 81, by the way. Um, I was appointed way back in 1982 to the House of Lords um, because of the 
battles I fought for academic freedom in a time when academic freedom was very much under threat in the UK in the 1970s with a very heavy infiltration by the hardline Communist Party, far left and further left. Not Labour Party, I used to be a Labour Party supporter once upon a time, but this is the really hardline communist and Soviet-funded infiltration into higher education in the 1970s. I was head of a department of social sciences, 20 of my academic staff, uh, 16 of my 20 academic staff were Communist Party or further left, Their definition of higher education was not mine. Mine is freedom to pursue the truth within the canons of academic rigor and as a Christian to stand for love. What was going on in my department, but also elsewhere in higher education, was academic blackmail, was corruption of the intellectual process and often physical violence. It was rough, tough stuff in the soft underbelly of higher education, social sciences, teacher education, media studies, humanitarian and the um, the other sort of subjects, such as the humanities, um, that was really serious stuff going on there. Students got a very raw deal. And I was so worried about the raw deal the students were getting that I wrote a book about it with two colleagues and called The Rape of Reason. And you don't write and run. So I was going back to face the music, quite nervous. But God is wonderful, provides a lifeline. A very famous columnist then writing in The Times um, on the day before the book was due to be published, uh, did a wonderful piece um, saying this is the most important book for the future of democracy he'd read for the last 10 years, and he was going to devote his remaining two articles that week to discussing it. So he gave us three articles, which before he'd only ever done for Mozart and Solzhenitsyn. That was God's gift to us. It got the book known, got me known, and I think was why Margaret Thatcher appointed me to the House of Lords to fight for academic freedom. One of the many dimensions we may touch on as we continue our conversation, of course, as you may know, here in Australia, we are on the eve now of a a discussion about freedoms, Uh, of course, religious freedom, but of course, along with that goes freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of academic expression and freedom of political communication. Uh, These are elements of freedom that find their foundation in religious freedom. And while we might be having our debate in Australia in the next month or more, and that may go on for months, it may go on for years, in some sense, as you're saying, you've already fought a battle around these issues in the UK. Uh, Do you feel as though, uh, and that battle had uh, points where you could say we've had victories and that there are still challenges? There's still great challenges, but the focus has changed a little bit. Um, Not so very long ago, uh, the bill was going through Parliament under Tony Blair's administration, which had in it very serious implications. It started in the House of Lords, and luckily we noticed it. It was a huge bill, but we picked this up. It would have been a criminal offence, punishable by up to six years in prison, to say anything negative about Islam, to say anything positive about Christianity, because that can be seen to give offence, or to make jokes about Islam. Now, that is a very serious infringement on freedom of speech. Uh, We got our act together. We had briefing sessions in the House of Lords. Mr. Bean, Rowan Atkinson, came. He wasn't in the least bit funny. He wanted the freedom to make jokes, a fundamental freedom. But I don't know if it happens in Australia, but very often in the UK, if people want to attack you by being Islamophobic, they'll add the word racist. Racist, Islamophobic. And I thought, well, we'll deal with that one. So I had a meeting with the black church leaders the Thursday before the big debate on the bill. They got the message quickly, many of them come from Sharia lands, and they said, we'll support you. I thought they were going to write to their local MPs. I arrived rather nervous the next Monday to speak in the debate, 
and was really quite shocked because outside Parliament it was mayhem. There were riot police, the vans with the bull bars, and the black churches had all arrived with placards saying freedom to choose and change religion, freedom of speech, and I hadn't had permission for a demonstration. So I went up to the senior police officer and said, Officer, I think this has something to do with me. He said, my lady, you have not had permission for a demonstration. And I said, it's not really a demonstration, officer. Um, I only spoke to people last Thursday. It's their you know, people's response to their concerns. He said, look, mighty like a demonstration be, my lady. Look at all those placards. And I admitted did. I said, well, I promise you, officer, there'll be no trouble. So they, he said, get them over the other side from Parliament. They were wonderful. They met there. They sang Amazing Grace. You could hear it inside Parliament. And at the end, the police said to me, that was the best demonstration we've had for 10 years, my lady. You can have as many as you like. That was wonderful. I needed them. But I could also stand up in the House of Lords and say, let nobody call us racist. Look who is demonstrating out there. Then the what I call the Freedom Amendments were passed in the House of Lords. The bill went to the House of Commons. Tony Blair's government was determined to remove the Freedom Amendments. So the black churches met again. They changed the minds of nine Labour MPs when the vote came to remove those Freedom Amendments. The first was lost by 10, and then Britain's freedom hung on a thread. The second vote, because the whips got busy, was lost by one vote. So our fundamental freedoms of speech uh, were very much at risk at that time. We have to keep a constant watch to protect our political, cultural, and spiritual heritage. We'll talk some more about that, and listeners might like to contribute to our conversation. We'll open our talkback lines on 1-800-316-316, 1-800-316-316, or leave a comment or question on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Let's talk about one of the more controversial things you are involved in at the present time. Just recently, uh, you introduced a private member's bill in the House of Lords uh, with the intention of protecting women under Sharia law, uh, issues of divorce, issues of domestic violence, uh, you have at the heart of your bill a compassion for women who are suffering under some of the issues in the UK. Indeed I do, perhaps because I'm known to have a concern for human rights, women's rights. Many Muslim women have come to me with their really very tragic problems, situations that should not be allowed. In Britain, the suffragettes will be turning in their graves. Just give you two examples, if I may. One is a lady came to me very recently, and she'd been divorced by her husband because under Sharia law, the man can divorce his wife just by saying, I divorce you three times. Uh, the woman has no reciprocal rights. If she wants to go to a Sharia council for help or advice, she may well have to pay for that. The man doesn't have to pay. She may not have the money. This particular lady was desperate. She'd been divorced uh, the imam refused to uh, support her in any way. He said the marriage never took place. Actually, she had a video footage of it. Then her husband had been bad-mouthing her, saying she was broken glass, blaming her, both in the UK and back for her community back at home in Pakistan. She was left destitute, desperate, no money, and she said, I'll never have a future. I'll never be able to have another good marriage. She was suicidal. And that shouldn't happen in Britain. Just one other example, a friend of mine is an obstetrician. And a 64-year-old man bought his 23-year-old wife to have repair of hymen, which is an illegal operation. My friend said, well, why do you want this operation? He said, because I want to take my wife back to Pakistan, marry her to another man. He'll get a visa to come to Britain, and I get £10,000 for doing this. My friend said, well, I'm not going to the operation. It's illegal. He said, being done all the time down the road at a city not far away. Think of the abuse of that young woman. 
Now, sadly, there are many, many similar stories, and many Muslim women do support what I'm doing. Uh, a private member's bill was supported by the Muslim Women's Advisory Council, by other Muslim groups in the UK. But what is happening there should not be happening in a democracy. It's a fundamental violation of women's rights, and we're meant to be promoting gender equality. And also, it's a threat to that fundamental principle of democracy, of one law for all. In the country which signed Magna Carta over 800 years ago, there's great concern we now have developing a kind of parallel legal system. When you say suffragettes will be rolling in their graves, and really that's a, a little bit of a dig at women's movements today that are not standing up for women in the way that you can see they ought to. What's wrong with women's liberation today? What's wrong with women standing up for other women? Well, we have organisations and groups who do support us very much. We have a website, www.equalandfree.org. should have a question mark in there, but you can't have a question mark in a hashtag. <laughs> but a lot of the information and a lot of the case studies are on there. Um, there are good organisations in the UK like Passion for Freedom, uh, you can look and see who they are. But I agree with you. We are very disappointed in the lack of very strong vocal support from many of the so-called women's groups. Many of those, I think, were born in the days I mentioned earlier on of the hardline far left, the Marxist-dominated time of the 1970s. Um, I don't know why they're not engaging. And it's a question I would like to put to them and challenge them because the way women are suffering in Britain today is something that certainly ought to be high on any agenda of any group concerned with women's rights. Listeners might have a comment on that. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. Caroline, you're in Australia. Uh, you are the CEO and the founder of the Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust, and you're working with some of our close neighbours uh, in Southeast Asia. What's the special focus that you're bringing while you're here? And uh, as I understand it, you're doing some special work with uh, with uh, Timor Leste. Uh, but what's uh, what is your main focus, and what would you like to inform our listeners about in the work that uh, you have with Heart? Thank you very much. It's wonderful working with Heart Australasia. The work in Timor Leste, which of course is your neighbour, focuses on the real problem of childhood malnutrition. Um, it's still nearly fifty percent of children in Timor-Leste, suffer from malnutrition, some of the really serious kind called stunting, which stunts both physical and intellectual growth and may be irreversible. And there are a number of programs going there to try to help the people of Timor-Leste. And one of my passionate principles in heart is you don't just go and lecture or talk to people. You work through local people. You enable local people to help their own people. That's the way to do it. And one of the ways which we've been doing that has been a program called Hem Health in Timor-Leste, where children who were badly malnourished would come and they'd receive the nutritional support. They'd go back to their villages, healthy kids, and adult relative would come and be taught how to grow nutritious food from the ground to the table. It's not an infertile land, but there's a lot of ignorance, a lot of superstition, a lot of cultural obstacles and so that particular program, the adults who came went back with the knowledge of how to grow healthy food and cook it and enjoy it. They'd share that with the communities. Now there's a significant number of community gardens, community farms, local people teaching local people. And the program that's being organized by um, Heart Australasia is also working with local people, helping to 
educate them. And in this case, particularly one of the foci is spacing of births. Uh, because at the moment, many women have births and year after year after year, and of course they don't have enough breast milk to provide enough food for their children, and they don't know how to give their children really healthy diet. They tend to give them rice water, which doesn't have very much. So there's a lot of work going on there, providing education and support, but with the local people, through the local people, for the local people. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. Our special guest this hour is Baroness Caroline Cox, who is in Australia, and a series of gatherings, a series of meetings. Our absolute privilege to have Baroness Cox with us in the studio, and our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. Caroline, we mentioned some of those nations that you're working in. Take us to some of the more tragic cases in nations, places like Nigeria, where there's all sorts of uh, challenging issues between uh, those who are Islamic in the north and those who are Christian in the south. Uh, there's also a, a north and south issue with Sudan and the uh, most recent nation, South Sudan. You visit these places personally and you see what sort of conditions people are suffering under. Well, I very much like you pleased to care about and pray about our Christian brothers and sisters suffering persecution. St. Paul said in his letter to the church at Corinth, when one part of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer. Nigeria, you may be aware that in recent months, hundreds of Christians have been killed in northern Nigeria and in Central Belt Plateau State. And when I was there last time, I was in four villages which had been destroyed by the Fulani herdsmen, who traditionally have been reasonably peaceable, but recently have become armed and are attacking Christian villages, doing land grab. I was in four villages which had been destroyed. I stood in the pastor's house where he had been slaughtered. So Nigeria, there is a lot of need for prayer. There's real persecution going on. So please pray for Nigeria. Um, in Sudan, you work there. Uh, last year, we crossed the border. I spent my, quite a bit of my time crossing borders illegally to reach the unreached <laughs> and the unhelped. The Nuba Mountains, now they're Christians, they're traditional believers, they're Muslims, they're all suffering at the hands of the Islamist regime, which will kill Muslims who don't support its Islamist ideology. We've been told that people have been forced to flee from their um, homes in the valleys and their farms up into mountains with deadly snakes because of constant aerial bombardment from Khartoum. So we arrived, I said I needed to see that to get the evidence Slightly regretted it. We'd taken the bottom of a huge mountain. I'd banged up my knee, falling over a tree at the airport. We climbed for two and a half hours up this steep mountain with boulders and rocks in 40 degrees heat, but it was so important to be there. Uh, We met the people who were suffering up there, people hiding in caves with deadly snakes. I met a girl who'd been bitten by a cobra. She survived. Most don't. Met a man with six children in his family. He built a straw extension to the cave, a bit more room for his family. When one of Khartoum's bombers came over, a shell set fire to the straw around his cave. Five of his six children were burnt alive. I met the six, burnt and horribly traumatized. It is real tragedy and needs real prayer. But also, I have huge respect for their dedication for the future. We always ask our local partners, what's your priority? Because we believe not in telling them what we're going to do, but asking them the dignity of choice. They said, well, we need everything. We need medicine. We need food. But above all, we need education because children are our future. And just very quickly, this made me feel pretty humble. They take the Kenya curriculum because that's a high quality curriculum. And they can't have education in schools because Khartoum targets any buildings where people gather 
churches, mosques, schools, clinics, markets. So they have to have education outdoors. But exams outdoors is quite a challenge. They have invigilators who come up from Kenya. They fly in, and about a 1,000 kids gather in one place for their exams. Our lovely partner, Nadra, told us how she had to ask each child to bring a large stone. When they arrived, she said, you know why I asked you to bring a large stone? Because when you hear the bombers coming, who put your exam papers neatly together, who put the large stone on those exam papers, and then you run. You'll hide in those caves. You'll lie flat on the ground. When the bombers have gone, you can return. Your exam papers will not have blown away in the blast or the wind, and you can continue your exams. Exam pressure with a little bit of a difference, but they do as well in those exams as many of their Kenyan counterparts. An amazing story. I'll just reflect. Rosie left a message on our Facebook page. Uh, She says, God bless you, Baroness Caroline. Thank you for sharing your ministry. I could hear you all day. Keep up the great kingdom work that you do for his eternal glory. Uh, Caroline, let me take you to what might be controversial. And this is the idea that some of your friends, some of your peers, fellows in the House of Lords and others who have political position don't like the idea that you go into some of these very risky places. Uh, You mentioned the idea of crossing borders illegally. Uh, I imagine that for uh, someone who holds a high position, as you do, uh, that that's not necessarily uh, a happy uh, thing for uh, for the UK. It's being frowned upon. Is that the case? No, not at all. Okay. Many of my fellow members of the House of Lords tell me when I stand up to speak, the House will listen to me because they know I've been there. I'm not just reading a report. And so it does actually command the respect of the House. Sometimes the government doesn't always love me very much because I and many of my fellow peers are quite critical of some of their foreign policies. And when we're critical, obviously, it makes an extra uh, power to the criticism if you've actually been there and can give the examples of the suffering of the people. So I'm not always popular with government. Some of the time I am. But I get a lot of respect from my fellow peers. So when you're talking to the gathering tomorrow night at the Melbourne School of Theology, uh, you'll be speaking about the plight of women under the rise of Islam that's been happening in the UK. And then you're able to reflect on how Islam treats women in many contexts, because when we talk about Nigeria, uh, when we talk about Sudan, South Sudan, and the conflict that's been going on there, there are some similarities that go hand in hand with people who hold uh, very seriously to their Islamic faith, and uh, and that Islamic faith starts to colour the way that you would see the rise of Islam in Western nations, like what's happening is way, way ahead of us in Britain, although there are some groups uh, and enclave-type situations developing here in Australia. So Australians have those concerns too. What are your thoughts quickly? Quickly, I believe in freedom of religion and belief. There are aspects of Sharia law that we can't complain about. You pray five times a day, possibly more than I do. You fast in Ramadan, probably more than we do in Lent. So we have to make a distinction between those aspects which are acceptable in our countries and those principles and rulings which are fundamentally incompatible with the laws, values, principles and policies of our nations. And that's where we need to draw the line because if those are allowed to develop, there'll be a real threat to our precious political, cultural and spiritual heritage. Uh, Caroline, you are in the House of Lords 
it is a significant role that you do play and you have a wonderful opportunity to be able to reflect what's going on in these nations that you are working in. Uh, the sorts of media attention that you get. I mean, just uh, for your visit to Australia, you were a guest on Alan Jones' program on 2GB. You're going to be on the uh, Sky News tonight with Peter Credlin. People want to talk to you. Honour to you for using your position to create opportunity to speak in a godly way about the issues that are going on around the world. You take your faith very seriously. Well, being in the House of Lords is God's gift. I would say God chose the weak and the foolish. He found his right number in me. I'm basically very shy. It's quite an ordeal speaking in the House of Lords, but I have a passion to try to be a voice for those people whose voices are not heard. So that's how I use that role and privilege. And those people who have no voice, uh, those ones who are voiceless, when you arrive on their home turf, uh, do they recognise that this is someone who can actually influence the foreign policy of the British government? Or is it just a lovely lady who's arriving and shaking my hand? What sort of reaction do you get when, you've, when you're meeting people on the ground? Sometimes they know of your reputation in advance, sometimes they don't. How do you relate to those people? Very humbling. In heart, Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust, we always work with local partners. We honour and respect them and enable them to make the difference for their own people. And we're always welcomed with enormous gratitude and appreciation. Um, we did a lot of work in the little Armenian enclave called Nagorno-Karabakh that Stalin stuck in Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan tried to carry out ethnic cleansing of the Armenians who lived there. Armenia, the first nation in the world to become Christian in 301, fourth century churches. I was there in the early 90s when Azerbaijan was firing 400 Grad missiles a day on the little capital city, low-flying aerial bombardment. It was the most high-intensity conflict of the early 90s, a hell on earth. The Armenians hung in there with courage and a lot of miracles. Um, we still go there. We have a partner there with the Rehabilitation Center for People with Disabilities who's turned out, bombed out old building into what's now internationally recognized as a center of excellence. I've been there 85 times. But I'm always just humbled. People are so grateful that you go and you speak for them and try and give them a helping hand. When I used to fly in by helicopter in the war days, we couldn't let people know in advance the helicopter would have been shot down. But apparently I was told when the plane landed, went round the herd of Karabakh, but the Cox has landed. Uh, and uh, <laughs> always receive enormous appreciation. Makes me very humble, though, the dignity, the courage of our brothers and sisters on the front lines of faith and freedom. When you are on the front lines of faith and freedom and in places that are especially dangerous, uh, dangerous and let me take you to Syria, uh, because it's uh, one of those uh, almost unresolvable uh, conflicts that's going on in the world at the moment. And you must gain and glean some significant political perspectives about what's going on because you've got superpowers uh, taking sides against one another and you've got a whole lot of groups that are interacting and it's a mishmash of confusion in Syria. If, we're, if I was asking you for... Uh, your immediate thought about what's happening in the Syrian situation. How do you reflect on that? I've been there several times. Our last report was Voices from Syria. Before I went the first time, way back in 2016, uh, the government did not want me to go. I had a required phone call with the minister. First of all, he tried to put the frighteners on and said it's really dangerous. And I said, well, minister, earlier this year, I was in the caves of deadly snakes. 
being bombed by Cod Tumits, how I used my role in the House of Lords. So he changed tack and said, you will ruin British foreign policy. I said, Minister, I've no idea what British foreign policy is. It's a pastoral visit. We're getting the invitation of the church leaders, the Grand Mufti. But when I got there, I realized what British foreign policy was. Uh, the people of Syria are absolutely terrified of British foreign policy. May I say, I don't condone the things that President Assad has done, which you can't condone. But we listen also to the voices of the people of Syria. And their real fear now about British foreign policy is forced regime change. British foreign policy is determined to get rid of the present regime. Out there, that's the last thing they want. There's no moderate opposition left. So if they get rid of the present regime, uh, it'll deteriorate into a situation like or worse than Iraq or Libya. And that's the last thing the local people want. So I came back with that message and I got a lot of support. Three former British ambassadors to Syria wrote to the Times newspaper and said forced regime change would be a disaster. Let the people of Syria decide their own future. And that's my bottom line. And when we go, we don't only meet the leadership we go out into the areas, we meet local people, uh, we also meet the parliamentarians, but we meet intellectuals, we meet musicians, but we meet farmers, we meet housewives whose husbands have been abducted by ISIS. Up in Aleppo, we were in western Aleppo and eastern Aleppo was still in the hands of the jihadists. Uh, we were entertained very generously uh, with a banquet to which everyone was invited. The Armenian evangelical pastor arranged it, the mullahs, the imams came, the Yazidis came, very, very inclusive. The bombs were falling all the time. The quintet played music while the bombs fell 350 metres from ISIS front line. But it's so important to be there and come back and be their voice. I don't impose my interpretation, but everyone we met in Syria, everyone, from the Grand Mufti, from the church leaders to housewives in Homs to Muslim refugees or displaced people in Turkey are terrified of British foreign policy. So I do challenge British foreign policy on that. What are your thoughts on the behaviour of the big nations involved in the issues that are going on in Syria? Because you've got Donald Trump and, of course, uh, Theresa May. Uh, you've got the French. Uh, you've got the Russians. Uh, even the Australians are there in an allied sense uh, in the issues that are going on in Syria. What are your thoughts for the behaviour of big nations around Syria and the challenges that are coming because of that? Deeply, deeply disturbing. Needs a lot of prayer. Um, you mentioned Donald Trump, and of course he uh, was took the lead in the recent missile attacks, supported by Theresa May and the French president, and we were there when that was actually happening. And I believe that was a disaster. We have a letter from the three patriarchs of the main churches in Syria, and I agree with their analysis. They said it was unethical, illegal, and dangerous. It was illegal because... In order to attack another country, and the missiles were an attack on Syria, that country either has to be about to attack your nation, so it wasn't about to attack Britain, America, or France, or a mandate from the UN. There was no such mandate. Also, the attack took place the day before the chemical weapons investigators were due to investigate. It was, I believe, unethical and illegal, but also very dangerous, because subsequently there have been people who've gone to that area where the alleged incident took place, and Robert Fisk, one of our journalists in the UK, writes The Independent, said he found no evidence of chemical weapons at all. And or the jihadists have access to chemical weapons as well. It was said in the House of Lords when this was debated, there was no reason why Assad should have used chemical weapons. He was winning on the ground anyway. So there is a real fear that 
situation is going to get very dangerous up in Italy, in the north. There will be another manipulated alleged chemical weapons attack. And Trump has said next time he'll come in really punitively. And that's just dangerous. The people of Syria prolongs their suffering. What are your thoughts for resolution in Syria? Because while there might be Western nations that are pushing for regime change, they want to move Bashar al-Assad out of that role. Uh, What are your thoughts for what would happen if he was removed? But uh, is there any sort of solution that could be on the horizon uh, that you might be thinking about in British government circles? Well, as I've said, the... From everyone we met in Syria, the real fear of regime change uh, is very widespread and very deep. Uh, many people who have spoken to us said they used to be fierce opponents of Assad. One from the Christian town of Malula said, I used to be a fierce opponent, now I would die for him. He has now got a lot of support from his own people inside Syria because he's seen as a bulwark against the terrifying atrocities perpetrated by the Islamists, ISIS, Jabhat al-Nusra, etc., So he has a lot of support inside Syria. You ought to let the people of Syria decide their own future. As far as the future is concerned, I have to say, and I've said this in public many times, I think Russia is doing the right thing in Syria. Russia is helping the Syrian army get rid of those terrifying jihadists. And their agenda uh, for Syria, I believe, is a good one. Get rid of the Islamists, get rid of the terrorists and the terror that they um, perpetrate, and then change the constitution have independent elections, and then allow the people of Syria to rebuild their land. Uh, Caroline, uh, just a a short while remaining for our conversation, but if we're talking about the work that you do, and if we're talking about heart, and you said, we're just a small relief organisation, well, no doubt uh, you're on the way to that being a big relief organisation because you have a wonderful multiple dimensions to what you do. You bring some level of compassion that perhaps others are able to do by way of bringing relief and aid, but you do bring some real heart, H-E-A-R-T, to the work you do with heart. When you visit places like Syria and you're mixing with the leaders there who are looking for the way that you're responding to the needs, you have a wonderful story about one Chaldean Roman Catholic priest. Let us in on his thoughts and questions about the likes of Doubting Thomas. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share the pain and the passion. We were up in western Aleppo when the bombs are coming in from eastern Aleppo all the time. We've been worshipping actually in Armenian evangelical church, but the mullahs, the imams, the Yazidis were all there, very inclusive. But after the service, this Chaldean Catholic priest came up and he said, thank you so much for coming. I've been thinking the story of Doubting Thomas. You remember that Thomas was not there when our Lord appeared to the other disciples. So he said, well, I'm not going to believe unless Jesus appears to me and I put my hands into his wounded hands and side. So Jesus did appear and said, put your hands into my wounded hands and side. Now you believe, go and tell. And this Chaldean Catholic priest said, this is the powerful phrase. He said, thank you for coming. You came to put your hands into the wounds of our suffering. Now you believe, go and tell. I think it's one of the great privileges of heart that we can be alongside people in their suffering. We can't obviously feel the extent of their anguish and their pain, but we can relate to them, as he put it, try to put our hands into the wounds of their suffering. And then you really do believe and have a passion to go and to tell.
And not every humanitarian organisation has someone at the helm who can take those dimensions to new levels. Uh, You can bring compassion, you can bring empathy, but then you can also pick up the phone and you can call those British government officials and give them the insights as to what's really going on. Uh, you do have a wonderful way of being able to take things to a new level. Advocacy is one of your most powerful roles. Yes, for it's a great privilege of being appointed to the House of Lords in the British Parliament. I can go back and say I've been, I've seen, this is how it really is, and the House does listen. So the advocacy is grounded on the great privilege of being with those people on the front lines of faith and freedom and being able to tell the truth, the reality of how it is, and be their voice, not my voice. I don't impose my views, my prejudice. We give their story, their voice. Undoubtedly, you are here to also make some friends, and there'll be people listening to our conversation now thinking, how do I connect with Heart Australasia and the work that you're doing in some of those nations that are our neighbours, Timor-Leste and uh, further into Burma, uh, areas that you're working with really oppressed peoples. Uh, when people are wanting to make friends with you, how easy is it to do that? Because I'll give a couple of websites in just a few moments, but is the website connection the first step to connecting with Heart? Absolutely. Um it was wonderful. We live in the world now where communication can just go around the globe. Our website has a lot of information about all the countries we're working in, Nigeria, Sudan, South Sudan, northern Uganda, the Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, in Burma, use where Burma, not Myanmar, because our local people prefer that. Amazing programs going on in the Chin Hill tribes taking health care to people who had no health care at all. And then on the eastern side of Burma, the Shan people, predominantly Buddhist, we work for people of any faith. Our Christian mandate must be to heal the sick, speak for the oppressed, not just the Christian oppressed, although the majority of people suffering persecution are Christian. But we work with the Shan. There's heavy fighting going on in northern Shan state. We all hear about the Rohingya. They are suffering. I'll speak for them. But they do receive a lot of aid and advocacy. The Shan don't. They're off the radar screen. Similarly, the Kachin, uh, very heavy fighting going on there, massive displacement, massive need. And then the area where we work with Heart Australasia and Timor-Leste, which we have already spoken about. All right. We're talking about a humanitarian organization, HEART, Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust. Now, there's two websites. Uh, one of those, heartuk.org. No doubt that's like the mothership. Uh, we can get lots of insights into what's going on with the organization around the world. Undoubtedly, though, there's going to be a link on the Australasian website, and listeners might like to avail themselves of some of that information, heart-australasia.org. That's heart-australasia.org. When people go onto the sites, uh, I imagine that uh, you're looking for donations. I imagine that you're looking for perhaps prayer partners, uh, people who will draw alongside the organization. And I imagine, too, that you want people to speak well of you. You want people to speak well of the humanitarian work that you do. All of those things are important. There's lots of dimensions that people can link into. We'd be very grateful if people do speak well of us because in doing so, they will be supporting those amazing partners of ours on those front lines of faith and freedom. And if you can read some of their stories, we are just always so humbled by their courage their faith, their resilience, their resourcefulness, the multiplier effect, the mustard seed people. We're very little. We can only give them 
little amounts of money, but they multiply that into ways that are transformational for their communities. So it's a wonderful way of being able to work alongside that mission uh, enunciated by St. Paul in the letter to the church at Corinth, when one part of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer. At least we can be there with them, but we can also help them as they try to help their people who are indeed suffering. Well, at the end of our conversation in just a couple of minutes, uh, you'll be ushered out of here and quickly on your way to an airport uh, where you'll be on a plane to Melbourne. Uh, Tonight you'll be a guest on Sky News and for listeners who might occasionally tune into Sky News tonight might be one of those times where you'll be able to see Baroness Caroline Cox as a guest of Peter Credlin on Sky News. Then tomorrow night, and there's still some time here to make your plan, Uh, and this is primarily for Melbourne listeners or those who can get to Melbourne uh, if you're listening throughout country Victoria uh, the Melbourne School of Theology tomorrow night 7pm and Baroness Caroline Cox is going to be talking about the growth of political Islam and the suffering of Muslim women, as you can hear, uh, bringing all of the experience that she has from the context in the UK and all of those dimensions that come from being a visitor to so many nations around the world uh, where women are feeling the heat of the oppression that comes from Sharia law, something to be resisted. So tomorrow night, Melbourne School of Theology from 7pm, a special opportunity for listeners in Melbourne to hear Baron Caroline Cox. Uh, Caroline, the Right Honourable Baroness Cox of of Queensbury, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us today here on 2020. Thank you so much for letting me share some of the pain and the passion and the privilege of making a little bit of a difference. And our final word, our motto in heart, we're so small, you look around the world, the needs are legion, you can be almost paralysed not knowing what to do. Our motto is, I cannot do everything, but I must not do nothing. And if together we do something, we can have the privilege of making a bit of a difference. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.